memo mixed up or something, Ryan. Well, hello and welcome. Um, last week I spoke on the subject, uh, a very simple and universally accepted subject that's not, uh, it's not a divisive subject at all, the subject of divorce found in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And divorce being a situation that affects, you know, 20 to 50% of Christians and non-Christians alike, it's a pretty high number. And uh, looking at that passage, we see that God is, is really focusing on our hearts throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that's what we see. We see that he's trying to get inside of us. And we looked at uh, this, big, this big sin of divorce, or, or previously the big sin of lust, which you know, a few days ago I was talking to the, the baseball team about uh, lust, and a few of them had made the comment you know, that's pretty common, which is it's okay to look but, but not touch. And, and, and so that brought up the conversation that we were discussing um, during one of the sermons, and it gave an opportunity to talk about sin. And one of our players, who's a very devout Christian young man, uh, he said, well, temptation is not sin. I said, that's right. Sin is sin. And temptation is not sin. It's the, the sin that comes from temptation that can get us. And, and then we got the opportunity to talk about how sin is simply missing the mark and how all mankind, according to the Bible, has missed the mark. They have fallen short of God's glory, which pretty much includes every one of you and the guy standing up here in front of this pulpit. Uh, everyone has missed the mark. And Satan's biggest goal is for our souls. That, that's his goal. His goal is to destroy us, um, destroy our eternal life. And oftentimes we think that uh, it's just the big ones that he comes after. You know, the murder. Well, he's a murderer. Or he, he's, a, he's a, an adulterer, or he's a divorcee, or he's, you know, he's done these terrible things to people. And that's not necessarily how Satan always works. Sometimes he works in what we would consider some of the lesser sins or the minor sins, uh, if you will. We were, had some people over and they said, well, is there different sins? And I said, well, the Bible does say there is sin that leads to death and there is sin that does not lead to death. There is the physical sin of sexual sin that a man commits in his body and the other is outside of his body. So it seems like there's different levels of sin, which is a whole other subject. But regardless, sin separates us from God. Missing the mark of perfection separates us from the creator of the universe. And Satan oftentimes will do things instead of focusing on our, our uh, keeping us from killing somebody because they did something wrong to us. But instead he might he might uh, attack us in our speech or uh, tempt us in our, our vows and the words we say and the things we do. And this morning, that's what we're going to be talking about is we're going to be talking about the passage in Matthew 5, verse 33, which we'll get to in a second because that's the next subject matter that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. But before we get to that, I, and I don't mean to do this every Sunday, but I probably will in some form or another. Uh, do this, and that's kind of recap the Sermon on the Mount, and every, every time I study this out for the next message, I look at the words, because I, I start over and I read it again, 
And he, when he says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So his disciples, root word discipline, are coming after him. They're following him. They're his followers. They come to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. And he gives them these beatitudes, which Steve pointed out, and I had never noticed this before, but these beatitudes are a very progressive aspect of Christianity. And I want to be firm in my teaching and my and, and what I'm explaining or trying to explain, attempting to explain, is that this whole concept that we have in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point is God saying, I want to fix your want to. I want to explain to you what was said, but I want you to understand what I want here in your heart. And he says, I want you to be blessed. And so I'm going to give you eight ways, you know, not the... Uh, not the seven spiritual laws of success that was written by Deepak Chopra, you know, four decades ago or whenever it was, but eight ways that you can be happy, eight ways that you can be blessed. And he goes on after that, and he said, you're going to be blessed when you're persecuted. You're going to be blessed when you're pure in heart. You're going to be blessed when you're a peacemaker. And then he says, he goes from the blessings to saying, you are, and now it's more of a, a statement of, like he said in Acts chapter 1, uh, you are my witnesses. It was basically saying, this is what you are when you are my disciple. You are the salt. You are the light. And then, he, and then Steve preached a couple of messages on Christ came to fulfill the law, to complete the, the law, and that we have freedom in Christ. And then we're not bound by the law anymore of the Old Testament, the, the, you know, the Pentateuch or the Beatitude, or the, uh, sorry, the Torah. And then he goes on to talk about anger and lust and divorce and these are seem to be pretty big sins, anger and lust and divorce, and we elevate them. But then he gets into a subject of oaths. And in oaths, we're going to look at that Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 37. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I can't, I'm not going to make a hair joke. Everybody does every time this comes up. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus is saying, it was said at some time a long ago, these things. So what is he referring to? Well, we're going to look at the three passages, the three main passages that are found in the Torah. Remember 512, 5512? This is in the first five. These are the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We have one found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. There's three passages we're going to look at. The first one is Exodus chapter 20. And any Bible student that has really studied the Old Testament and, and, and really sought it out, understands and knows that this was the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. So in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, it said, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, and he, go, and he goes, he's speaking these words, and in verse 7 he says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I, I want to reiterate the concept of sin. Sin is missing the mark. God set all of these rules and regulations and don't wear wool and linen, don't plow with two types of seeds in the same field, 
don't do this, do this. There's positive commands, there's negative commands. There's all these passages in the Old Testament. One of those is do not, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So when I was a kid and for a long time and up until recently, I was believed that that firmly only meant you shall not say uh, the Lord's name in vain. I, obviously, I'm not going to say it. But uh, you shouldn't do that. That's a, that's a sin. That's a breaking of the Ten Commandments. And while I do believe that is part and parcel, that is taking God's name in vain, because that is taking it flippantly, that is saying God's name and using it in a very irreverent manner, I do believe that's part of what he's saying, but I think there's more to it. You shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. So if you've done that ever, one time, guess what? You're a sinner. You sin. And the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. So there's a, there's a very important uh, message here in the Ten Commandments. Anything that we've done here separates us from God's mercy. It separates us from God's grace. The second time that it's, it's discussed is Leviticus chapter 19. So in Leviticus 19, starting in verse, well, we're just going to read verse, uh, we'll read verse 11 and 12. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. That sounds different than Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 7. One says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. And this one says, uh, you shall not swear by my name falsely. And then the third one, Deuteronomy, go another uh, two books, Deuteronomy 23. And it's talking about uh, miscellaneous laws. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from uh, his place to yours. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. That seems obvious. And none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. Uh, You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Uh, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God is... uh, will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. And then, uh, so, uh, and then it says, for, I'm in verse 21. Let's read that again, 21 to 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will be not guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So again, Exodus chapter 20, using the Lord's name in vain. These last two passages seem to be when you make a vow, when you say something to God, when you promise Him you're going to do something, you need to do it. Because if you don't do it, you're guilty. The word uh, Shabbat is the word that's used here, and it means to seven oneself, which is like the word vow, as if to swear by repeating a declaration seven times. That's what the word means in the Hebrew. And Jesus here is reminding that, going back to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is reminding here that the law forbids swearing in the name of the Lord. It doesn't necessarily mean using profanity, it means promising something and using God as collateral. 
I swear, I promise, I vow, as God is my witness, I will be there at 2 o'clock tomorrow. I swear, I promise, I vow that I will make dinner tonight. It's just, it's using God as collateral and saying, I'm going to do it as God is my witness. Now, in the days of Jesus, there was a, a really good article that I read and it, 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 commentary that I read, and I'm going to read it to you because I think it, it adds, I think, a lot of value to what Jesus was dealing with at the time. And it's easy for us in our culture to read this and go, well, that doesn't make any sense. But when we, when we hear about you know, the parable of the sower and the man throwing seeds along the path, we go, well, who does that? The only time we do that is when we're spreading fertilizer, you know, nitrogen, 90-10 nitrogen on grass to make it green, not too much nitrogen, or maybe it's 70-30. Not too much nitrogen because it'll burn the grass. Some of us are familiar with that. We're tossing fertilizer or we're tossing seeds out into the, into the grass and we've got patches of seeds. But they understood the parable of the sower because it was culturally something that they experienced. So when Jesus is talking to uh, the disciples in the days of the Jew, it was said this about that. In the time of Jesus, there were two unsatisfactory things about taking oaths. The first was what might be called frivolous swearing, taking an oath where no oath was necessary or proper. It had become far too common a custom to introduce a statement by saying, by this life, or by my head, or may I never see the comfort of Israel if dot, dot, dot. The rabbis laid it down that to use any form of oath in a simple statement like, that is an olive tree, was sinful and wrong. The yes of the righteous is yes, and their no is no. They didn't need to add anything to verify that what they were saying was true. There is still need of warning here. Far too often, people use the most sacred language in the most meaningless way. They take the sacred names upon their lips in the most thoughtless and irreverent way. The sacred names should be kept for sacred things. So you had the frivolous swearing, using something sacred very flippantly. And then the second Jewish custom was in some ways even worse. It might be called evasive swearing. And this is partly what Jesus was referring to here, evasive swearing. The Jews divided oaths into two classes. Okay, you had two classes of oaths. Those which were absolutely binding and those which were not. Any oath which contained the name of God was absolutely binding. Any oath which succeeded in evading the name of God was held not to be binding. The result was that if a man swore by the name of God in any form, he would rigidly keep that oath. But if he swore by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by his head, the hair on his head, he felt quite free to break that oath. The result was that evasion had been brought to a fine art. I swear by the footstool of God. I swear by the throne of God. Not to God, but to the earth he created or to the heavens he created or to the hair he created or to the footstool he created. So it became a fine art for people to swear on something to make themselves appear righteous, that I will do it according to this, but they evaded God by not using the name of God. The idea was that if God's name was used, God became a partner in the transaction of the oath or the promise. Whereas if God's name was not used, God had nothing to do with the transaction. The principle which Jesus lays down is quite clear. In effect, Jesus is saying that, so far from having to make God a partner in any transaction, 
No man can keep God out of any transaction. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here when he says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. You can't do that. You don't have control over that from the creation of things. Everything is God's. It is God's heaven. Who made it? God made it. The throne? Earth? I'm going to keep going until you all agree. Footstool? Jerusalem? There on your head? God. And so they're swearing by things outside of God, they think, but what they're really doing is swearing on His creation. He's saying, that's not what was intended. That's not what I'm looking for from you. I'm looking for your yes to be yes and your no to be no. Our words and our promises mean something, but our integrity as followers of Jesus is really the heart of the matter. Our words mean something, but our actions, which are the fruit of our desires or the fruit of our reality, is what matters. That's what God is looking for, and that's what basically the Sermon on the Mount to date is talking about. He's talking about the heart issue. He's talking about what is your goal, what is your role, what is your reality, who are you? Are you just someone that checks the box and does the right thing and says, well, I think I can maneuver my way around this rule and that law and this this teaching, if I can maneuver my way around it and find a way to be right with God, yet still live the life I want to live, that's what God is after. He's like, that's not what I'm expecting. That's not what the teaching is. That's not what, if you're my disciple, that's not what you do. When, you, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount and we see this teaching, there's, this is, guys, this is to us. This is written to people that say, I am a follower of Jesus. And I was thinking about this on the way to church today, driving along and, you know, kids are talking and Brenda's, and I, my, my brain is just going, there's so much that people say is in the Bible that's not, and there's so much that people are saying is not in the Bible that is. So when someone says to me, is this a sin or is that a sin? My first response was, yeah. But then I go, well, maybe it's not. I don't know. Let, let, me, let me look in the Word and see what it says because I want to be able to stand in front of God or kneel in front of God or whatever it is in front of God we do at the end and say, God, I, you know my heart. You know that I genuinely wanted to know if what you're teaching or what I did or what I didn't do is against your rules, is against your laws, is against your love letter, is what this is. That's what I want to know. I want to know what's in here, not what I've heard or been taught my whole life. I want to know what the, what the Word says. Socrates, not Hippocrates, Socrates, he was a great Greek teacher and orator, he stated, a man must lead a life which will gain more confidence in him than ever an oath can do. Clement of Alexandria, he insisted that Christians must lead such a life and demonstrate such a character that no one would ever dream of asking an oath from them. The ideal society is one in which no man's word will ever need an oath to guarantee its truth and no man's promise ever need an oath to guarantee its fulfilling. I can tell you 
putting this message together, I was convicted off my socks, out of my socks, completely convicted by it. I was a text message this morning about irrigation water up in the Redlands that I got to deal with tomorrow. And I'm like, I'll be there, at, uh, I'll call you tomorrow on my way. And then I thought, how many times have I told him, I'll call you tomorrow as I go there to figure this out, but 15 other things come across my desk that I'm like, oh, I've just placed my first promise, and I've placed it fifth. I've placed, placed it eighth. How many have done that? Yeah. Like, I told you I'll be there unless something more important comes up. And, and I think Jesus is calling us to a place where we say, if you say you're going to do it, do it. Do it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And so I'm, I'm convicted going, I need to just say, if it works out, I'll call you on the way <laughs> to when I meet you there. And so now I'm bound tomorrow to meet him tomorrow when I may, something may come up that I, it's going to be really difficult, but I vowed I'm going to be there. So I've got to be there or I'm just a hypocrite. I'm just an actor saying, well, no, I'm, I, I believe what this says uh, unless it doesn't suit me. And that's an area, that's the whole, th the beauty of Christianity. I, wa I want you guys to understand how I understand it and how I understand it now. This idea of Christianity, it is a marathon that happens over time. We are constantly becoming more Christ-like if we're trying to be more Christ-like. If we're truly a man or a woman after God's own heart and we're seeking things like this, this thing about O's and the Sermon on the Mount ought to convict the socks off of me. And it didn't five years ago. But I've been a Christian almost 20 years. So why didn't it convict me 20 years ago? I wasn't ready for the conviction. And as I'm getting more mature in my walk and my faith and I'm growing and I'm learning and I read that and I go, well, I need to be better at this. I need to be more Christ-like when it comes to this aspect of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's the whole point of God giving the disciples, his followers, these words is so that we can become more like he wants us to become. Let's look at the importance of our word according to the Scripture. So in Psalm 15, the 15th Psalm, the title of the chapter in Psalm 15 is, Who Shall Dwell on Your Holy Hill? This is a psalm by David. David was called a man after God's own heart. And in Psalm 15, verse 1 through 5, it says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Another couple of words, I'm out of the ESV, but O Lord, who shall enter or who shall abide in your tabernacle, who shall enter or abide in your holy temple, who shall enter or abide in your holy place or your place, who shall dwell on your holy hill. And then he gives a list of character traits of people that will be allowed to enter into the holy place of God. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes 
a vile person, that word vile means morally corrupt or morally despicable, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. This is who can walk, or this is who can dwell in his holy place. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. I made a vow to be there. It's going to ruin the rest of my day if I keep my vow. I'm going to keep my vow. To his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. That word, this is the beauty of this passage in Psalm 15. Okay? We were like, I want to I see the pearly gates. I want to see heaven. I want to know what it's like to spend eternity with the king of kings. I want to know what it's, I want to be able to ask, how did this happen? Or how did you do this? Or just be in awe for eternity. People say, do you think heaven's going to be boring? I'm like, well, life isn't boring here, and we're riddled with struggles and pain. Can you imagine what life would be like eternity without struggles and pain? I'm not bored. I'm not bored like I wish my life would end right now. I'm bored because I got too much going on, or I'm, I'm struggling because I got too much going on, not because I'm bored. And so when we get up to that eternal place where we can be with God, I want to get there. And it says, he who does these things shall never be moved. That word never be moved, and in a couple of other translations, is never stumble, to be secure, to never be shaken. How would you like to never stumble? How would you like to feel secure in your relationship with God all the time? How would you like to never be shaken when it comes to your relationship with God? And one of the ways that he gives this list is to swear to his own hurt and does not change. Even when it's hard, you know you're doing it because God says this is what you should do. Again, it's basic instructions before leaving earth. It's basic Bible teaching. So the next one I want to look at is Psalm 24, a couple of pages, Psalm 24, 3 through 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. That is also take a false oath or make false promises. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of Jacob. Another passage in Ecclesiastes says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. So someone is a fool who makes a vow to God and does not pay it. Pray what you, or pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. I know I told you this, but I made a mistake. It's better to not vow than to vow and not pay. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many... There is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. That's in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, written by the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon. 
So I look at this passage where it says, um, let not your mouth lead you into sin. Again, guys, when I'm putting these messages together, when I'm putting these passages together as I'm reading them, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of me. So if you feel like, man, he's talking right to me, well, maybe I am, but it wasn't intentional most of the time. Sometimes it is, but I'll never tell you when. But I'm speaking to myself. I'm looking at where am I falling short in my walk? How can I take the next step to where God says, well done, my, faith, my good and faithful servant? Isn't that the, the goal, to hear that? But in James chapter 5, James is, 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 I believe, reiterating what Jesus has said back in the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 12, he says, but, uh, 5.12, But above all, brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You flip back a passage, it says, A man is perfect if he can keep his tongue in check. In James chapter 3, not all should presume to be teachers because those of you that teach will be judged more strictly. So there's something that comes from our words and our mouth. And when he says a man is perfect if he can keep his tongue in check, and it says here, let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. This may challenge some of your beliefs. And I'm okay with that. Have you ever seen that movie, Jerry? Well, well, if you have, it doesn't matter. If you've seen the movie Jerry Maguire, it's about a sports. Uh, uh, what, what is he called? Agent. Thank you. Big word, Brian. Sorry. <laughs> thank you for your help. Sports agent. He's a sports agent, and Jerry Maguire is working with this huge company, and there's several hundred or 500, however many agents, other agents, and they go after these high-profile athletes and they try and, and, and get you know, a percentage of their income by getting them endorsements and contracts and all that. So he has this awakening one day because one of his best clients is a hockey player who has his third or fourth concussion, and his son comes up and he's like, hey, Jerry, is he going to be okay? And he goes, nothing can stop your dad. Your dad is this and your dad is that. And the kid gets upset and gives him an obscene gesture and then Jerry is convicted by the fact that he's, he's in an industry that these people are just basically paychecks to him. He doesn't have personal relationships. So he writes this memorandum, sends it out to the company, and he ends up getting fired because uh, he was basically taking money from the company by saying, you need to be smaller, excuse me. You need to be a smaller company. You need to focus more on the clientele and personal relationships. So all these people are leaving his his agency or his him personally as their agent, they're going to the big agency that he was just fired from. But he has this one, this one client, this, this wide receiver for the Arizona Cardinals who becomes his pretty good buddy, but it's not, guy's not much of a payday for him. So he's got he's to get a big payday. So he gets Cush. Cush is this quarterback, the stud quarterback from Texas, and he's either going to go to uh, San Diego or Denver. He'll either surf or ski. And so he drives from wherever he's at. He goes to Texas to meet the, the, the guy, Cush, and he needs to get a contract and say, I want to be your agent. You need to go with me. So he walks into the house. They shake hands and, hey, how you doing? They start talking. And the dad says, Jerry, we've decided to stick with you. 
And he's ecstatic because now his newfound company is actually going to be successful. And so he's all excited. And the dad says, you know, I don't do contracts. But my word is as strong as oak. Shake his hand, real big, firm Texas group handshake. And Gary's all excited. And that's where, you know, he's driving. He's like, I'm free ball. You know, he's driving down the highway. He's all excited. Well, he didn't get the contract. And so... A month later, they're at the draft or whatever it is, or the signing, and he talks to the guy, and the guy says, Jerry, we, we signed a contract with the other firm, you know, 10 minutes ago when you were down in the lobby talking to that colored fella. So he has this racial slur about the, one of his other clients, and there's the antagonist of the movie, which is partly the other agents, but also the dad, and why is he an antagonist in the movie? Because he shook the man's hand and he said, my word is as strong as oak. And we all believed him. And we all felt, whoever watched the movie, at least that's a man. I don't know how women feel because I'm not a woman, but I know as a man I looked at that and I went, man, that's awesome. Back when you can just have a handshake on a deal and you could say, yeah, it's a done deal and that's the end of it. And we all felt, I felt like irritation towards that guy. And there's this saying that we've all heard that a man is only as good as his word. A man is only as good as his word. And that's a compliment that we hear about people. Man, that guy, he's a man of his word. He's a man of his word. And that's a compliment that we hear, and it, it just kind of like you respect a guy. He's like, if he said he'll be there, he'll be there. And so when I, when I look at these Again, when I look at these passages about oaths, I'm challenged by it. Going, i got to zip my mouth sometimes and say, if I can get there, I'll get there. If I can't, I can't. I'll do the best I can. I'm confessing to you. That's the whole beauty of Christianity, brothers and sisters, is that it is God constantly refining us and pruning us and trimming us and making us more like Him as we seek Him. We're not all of a sudden, I'm not going to one day wake up and fulfill every single one of these attributes that God calls us to in Matthew chapter 5. But when it says in James, let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you will not fall under condemnation, he's writing to Christian people. This is where some of us might differ theologically. I don't know. But I think what he's saying here, when you hear the word, and you see the word, and you willingly ignore the word, that's a dangerous place to live. That's a dangerous place. That's why this is so important when we start looking at this as people that say, I want to follow God, I want to follow Jesus. Well, I've been divorced. I've had lustful thoughts. I've made oaths. I've gotten angry. Okay? So as the rest of the 9 billion people in the world, or 8 billion, or however many, so the rest of them have too. But what are you going to do from today forward? <laughs> God said, I want your heart. I want you to follow me with everything you've got. And you're going to stumble. You're going to struggle. There's going to be other things that you learn. You're going to learn about retaliation and loving your enemies and giving to the 
to the needy that need it. And you're going to learn about fasting and not focusing on the world's treasure, but focusing on treasures in heaven. You're going to learn about not worrying. Do not be anxious. You're going to learn about what is it like? What does it mean when he says judging others? What does it mean the golden rule? We're going to learn all this stuff in the Sermon on the Mount over the next couple of months, and my goal is that you start applying it more and more every single day. And a passage that we're going to probably hit soon, well, we will hit soon, but I'm going to go ahead and talk about it now for a minute before we leave, is this this idea of perfection. In Matthew 5.48, in Matthew 5.48, Jesus himself said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the first time I preached on that, I went, well, I'm done. (laughs) I can't be perfect. As my heavenly Father is perfect? That's not possible. we We can't meet that perfection. Unless I have the wrong idea about what he means perfection is. And as I look into this word, be perfect, no, you therefore must be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word perfect in the Greek, it's 5046 for you Strong's Concordance nerds, it means teleos. That's what the Greek word for perfect, it's teleos. And the word is often used in Greek in a very special way, it has nothing to do with what we might call abstract philosophical or metaphysical perfection. A victim which is fit for a sacrifice to God, that victim which is without blemish, is teleos. A man who has reached his full-grown stature is teleos, in contradistinction to a half-grown boy. A student who has reached a mature knowledge of his subject is teleos, as opposed to a learner who is just beginning and who has yet no grasp of things. The word teleos in the Greek means complete or used for the purpose it was intended. Example, I've got a screwdriver loose in my house, or a screw loose in my house. Not me, but an actual screw loose in my house. And I go to the garage, and I grab a screwdriver, and the screwdriver fits in my hand perfectly, and I find that it's a Phillips or flathead, whatever it is, and I grab the screwdriver, I put it in there, and sometimes you've got the little tiny screwdrivers, and then you've got the really big screwdrivers, depending on the head of the screw. Well, this, I just happen to pick the perfect screwdriver that fits perfectly into the head of the screw, and I tighten the screw down, and it's done. In the New Testament sense, that screwdriver is teleos, because it's exactly fulfilled the purpose in which it desired. Be perfect. Fulfill the purpose of why you're here. Each and every single one of you in this room. None of you are exempt from the passage in Matthew 5.48 that says complete the purpose. Be the purpose for why you were created. And you go back to Genesis when God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created God in the image of his own likeness. Every one of you guys are created for a purpose so more powerful than what the world is trying to tell you you're created for. 
I don't know what it is. Maybe you're going to be a preacher one day in Uganda. Maybe you're going to be a, 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 the, the, messi- the messenger of salvation for your coworker or for your spouse or for your kids. Maybe you're going to be a prayer warrior for the king. We all have a purpose which God has created us for. So when he says be complete, find the purpose to which you were called so that God can have the glory for your life. And when I see these passages in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6, as you read them, my prayer for you is you go, wow, I struggle with this. Therefore, I'm going to become more mature, not lacking anything. I'm going to add to my faith goodness and goodness knowledge and knowledge self-control. I'm going to do all the things that God has called me to do because we're capable of doing it when we have the Spirit of God living in us. It's Him who helps us get there. One of my favorite passages for people that struggle with, well, what about this and what about that? And I, I did this, you know, back when, and this happened to me one time, and this is the life I'm living in now, and I want to leave it, but I want to start serving God. And there's this passage I can't find. I can just quote it. It's, it's, I can find it in my other Bible because I know where it's at in the chapter. But it says this. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That is what we're called to do. We're called to fix our eyes on Jesus. And it's looking through the windshield, not the, the rearview mirror. Fix your eyes on Him, the author and perfecter of our faith. It is a faith that is continual Continual, continual, every day, every week, every year, we get closer and closer to God. And for me, this was a convicting passage because it's something I struggle with. I take it flippantly. I take my word flippantly. And I use the excuse of, well, I'm really busy. Well, you got the same number of hours in a day, same number of days in a week, and same number of weeks in a year is every human being on the planet. So be careful what you say, mate. That's the beauty of this book. It doesn't matter if you're a preacher or you've been a Christian for five minutes. It will constantly clean you up. It will constantly prune you. Amen? Next week, retaliation. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Yeah, we talked about that a couple days ago. If a guy punches me, can I punch him back? We'll talk about that next week. Uh, we have a birthday today. If you're not here next week, it's because you're mad at me for embarrassing you, Debbie. We have a birthday today. So after we have communion, uh, we, before we eat, let's all sing happy birthday to Debbie. And then my dad turns, what, 52 tomorrow? 48. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't even bother <laughs> asking. <laughs> I know better than that. You're May 8th, Kim? I won't ask how old you are either, but I know you're younger than my dad. Happy birthday to both of you tomorrow, and happy birthday to you today. Who? Cassidy? May 8th? Oh, my goodness. 
Did you bring a cake? We've got lots of desserts over there. So let's, uh, let's pray. Who has communion? And we'll go ahead and do communion, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll fellowship for a while. Father, thank you so much for uh, this beautiful day. Thank you for the weather. Thank you for your creation. Uh, we stand here just in awe when we open our eyes and just pay attention to what you've made. And we thank you so much for your words that are the words of eternal life. And I pray that you give us the courage, the strength, the wisdom, the knowledge, um, the guts, Father, to just take what you have to say and take it to heart and become more and more every day servants of you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.